From the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. A lot of what I try to do in the news is basically just short documentary filmmaking within the spectrum of, of journalism. My guest today is Ben Solomon. He's a multimedia journalist working for the New York Times. He received a Pulitzer Prize for his work on the Ebola outbreak in Western Africa. He's also covered the Arab Spring in Cairo and the unrest in Ferguson following the police shooting of Michael Brown. His latest work for the New York Times follows Iraqi forces during the most recent clashes in the city of Fallujah. Using 360-degree virtual reality cameras, Solomon's video Fight for Fallujah marks a significant development in video reporting of war. Stay tuned for Modern Media. Ben Solomon, welcome to Modern Media. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, I guess one of the things I wanted to start with was your uh, work in virtual reality. Um, The New York Times seems to have uh, ventured into some new territory with that. And um, I'd like to think about the technology involved in that. So I know you have these cameras that shoot uh, 360 degrees. Um, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, just working in that way first and the kind of stories you can tell in that form of the video medium. Yeah, I think that um, part of our job these days in exploring that stuff is figuring out what stories we do want to tell and what stories are worthy of telling in that medium. So much of, uh, I think, the beginnings of this new virtual reality stuff is just like how novel it is and how cool it is. Oh, my God, like virtual reality, you can see in all directions. But the reality is, I think, that right now what we at the New York Times virtual reality department are trying to do is figure out what are the stories that actually add journalistic value with this dimension. Uh, And it's not easy. It's kind of like its own special breed of crazy Uh, uh, some of the stories that we're like finding out and dealing with are, you know, the, the question that we have to bring to each one of them is like, well, why not just a video? You know, why not just a written story? If there's something that we can add with virtual reality and the dimension of having it in 360 degrees, then that's what's really special for us. But some those stories aren't always apparent and the stories always are, aren't always easy to do. Yeah. So in the so you used it particularly in the fight for Fallujah video, right? Um and I wonder if you can tell me about what about that story made made that uh, that technology that approach work. Well, for that piece, the fight for Fallujah, we it was the first time we really wanted to experience uh, combat and war in, in 360 degrees. The idea was to get a full full picture of how fighting works, how the progression of a war strategically moves from one place to another. And then how, what the aftermath that it leaves, what are the things that are left behind? And, and for that, I think part of it was just the approach, the novel approach of being able to see war in all these dimensions. But it was also giving viewers the opportunity to have the choices to look around them and giving people the control of exploring the place and immerse them in this place that otherwise they wouldn't be able to go. So in a way, it was it was a mixture of things. It was trying to just be something new, something just a break from their usual way of doing things, but it was also trying to accomplish a new kind of understanding and a new way for people to kind of interact with this very old thing, war. Yeah. One of the things that struck me uh, about it was that I kept uh, coming back, when I was moving around it, I kept coming back to you. Um, 
uh, and I know, um, and actually the narration as well was your voice. Um, and, and that's opposed to some of the other stuff you've done with, say, the, uh, the Ebola ambulance driver where you let his voice be the, the, the voice. And I'm wondering if there's a, a way in which giving the audience that uh, ability to kind of look around, you need to anchor them somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, so much of, of of the work that I try to do is character-based, you know, work about one person or one place, kind of seeing through the lens of one person, the way that they're experiencing the world and, and trying to get the value of a news event through that one person and through the emotions they experience. With this, with, with the fight for Fallujah, you know, first of all, we were, it was really crazy work. We weren't like able to kind of work with one person or one team. We were getting bounced around for the sake of safety, for the sake of of just where we were allowed to go. So really the only person, the only consistency and the only kind of regular thing that was going to happen throughout that is me, is is the, the maker. Because when you do these 360 videos, it shoots in all directions. And if you're not hiding as the filmmaker, then you're in the shot. So we decided early on just to embrace that and just to have me as a correspondent and as like the reporter be a part of the piece and be a part of the not try to make it anything else to be completely forthright and honest about who I was and why I was there. Um, Because frankly, like we couldn't do it otherwise. Like I wasn't going to go hide somewhere when there was a (laughs) middle of battle or something. I had to be where it was safe. It was like a matter of kind of what's available and what's possible. Um, So it wasn't my favorite thing to do i don't like so much being a center of attention in any of the work that i do but uh this was i think the best way to kind of present the story and present it in this dimension and in this kind of uh medium that made sense yeah did you feel like you were trying to in some ways with the narration at least guide the user viewer in some way because in some ways the using the the virtual reality really unmoors the the audience you can go anywhere um, and did you feel that you had a, a some something of an obligation to at least guide the information in some way? Yeah, I mean, virtual reality is is you as a director, as a filmmaker, you are giving up so much of your control to the viewer. You have to. It's the nature of the medium, and the only way to kind of get people to look at things or get people to understand things that you want them to see is very implicitly, very like. It's not, you can't just cut and show them something or force their eye. You have to kind of guide them. You have to kind of suggest it, basically. And so the power of the narration in this piece was just that, was to kind of push people in a certain way, to kind of focus on something. There was one scene when uh, a body was out in the middle of one of the roads, and I shot it far away because the body was very, it was very gruesome. It was, yeah. a, it was a hard scene to see, and I didn't want to put it too close just because uh, I, th- I think it was very graphic. Um, and I don't think people would, I think it was too much for people to look at. So I put it far enough away, but when we actually looked at the shot, it was kind of hard to see that it was a body. So a lot of the confusion was how do we get people to see that? How do we get people to know what it is? And how do we get people to kind of look in that direction without it being too much like, look over there and be more a bit like, okay, over there, like, and the wording was really important, how we kind of guide people and do that in a way that's not overwhelming and not kind of too tasteless and yeah. Well, why don't we take a listen to that scene? Uh, This is Ben Solomon's Fight for Fallujah from the New York Times. The brutality of the Iraqi forces was on display as well. On the side of the road there, right under the sun, what appeared to be the body of an ISIS soldier was left in the street. 
He had been beheaded. His legs were bound, and it looked like he had been dragged by a car. We watched uncomfortably as the Iraqi militia fighters took photos with the body. It seems to me to be a standard tension in what uh, in the media that try to open up user involvement in that way. So even going back to video games or early hypertext kind of storytelling, you know, you want to let the viewer explore at the same time you don't right. want them uh, totally out of control. I've always been critical of the idea that you you want to you know. I think in, in those kind of situations, viewers should be able to get lost a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time, when you're telling a story, you really got to sort of handle where they're at and, right. and make sure that they're getting some things. I think virtual reality right now is at this weird kind of beginning moment where everybody's trying to figure it out and everybody's yeah. only kind of t context for understanding how to do it is film, is filmmaking, yeah. cinema. And let's not, you know, it's like going to people that are making films and saying, well, the only context we have is photography, so that's how we're going to do it. And it's not right. You have, it's its own it's its own language. It's its own understanding. And you have to kind of spend the time to figure that out. I think right now, because it's so new and people are so excited about it and companies see so much potential in it, uh, there's a lot of investment and there's a lot of people that are really putting a lot of money into trying to get people to use it. But I think still, like, I, you know, the way I see it is like, 3D printmaking, mm -hmm. the 3D printers. Yeah, when 3D printers came out, there was so it was so cool. Yeah, it was so novel, and everybody was like, "Whoa!" Now we can like print off these like household items, and and for a while people were, but then after a while, you know, people were spending five hundred dollars to buy this 3D printer, and then they were spending like sixty, seventy dollars on a spool of the plastic, <laughs> and they were printing out maybe like some like you know faucet thing that broke and, yeah. and they're like oh well I could you know just drive to Walgreens you know like it's just there so got that for $20 you know and, <laughs> and and in the end of the day I think it kind of like what what happened is the the novelty and the effect of how cool and new it was built up so high that it just had to drop off and it spiked and then it went straight down what's happening now with it is that it's building slowly and it's it's not it's, it's because it's starting from this point where people know it people have heard of it people appreciate its tech I think now it's kind of doing a creep cra a, a crawl from kind of like whatever this thing is that used to be cool to something that actually has effect in different people's places and different lives and different mediums and different stuff and I think the same thing is going to happen with virtual reality I think it's this peak this novel peak is eventually going to drop off yeah. People are going to be like, remember back in like 2015 and 16 when <laughs> everybody was obsessed? And then eventually it'll kind of crawl up again. And I think it'll have individual uses that are really good. I think uh, the, the most apparent and the most, I think, profitable is video games. Video mm -hmm. games are going to be awesome in VR. I sure. can't wait. Sure. And then, uh, and then also just medical procedures and, and kind of like... Uh, I think military militaries are going to use it in different ways. I mean, augmented realities, you already see things like Pokemon Go kind of gaining so, yeah. much, so much attention. And I just think that it needs to kind of die before it grows again. It no, needs to kind of fall off before it can kind of make a steady and, and, and more solid approach into usefulness in people's lives. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a nice, I mean, that's sort of a standard uh, a, a trajectory for new inventions or new, new ideas, which is they have that novelty stage and then they have to find a use and then they become the thing that they're supposed right. to be. We're talking today with Ben Solomon, a Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia journalist from the New York Times. We'll be right back after a short break.
Welcome back to Modern Media. Our guest today is Ben Solomon, a Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia journalist from the New York Times. Let's take a uh, uh, shift a little bit here and t- start talking about some of the work you've done that's um, not in the virtual reality realm, but um, is, is slightly more standard documentary form. So, uh, you know, the, the work on the Ebola crisis, um, the ambulance driver video, the, the piece that um, for which you won the Pulitzer, how did you approach that as an aesthetic piece, as something that you want, a story you wanted to tell? And what, I wonder if you could talk about some of the decisions you made in terms of the voice of the ambulance driver as opposed to your voice as the reporter, some of the uh, editing decisions you made. Um, so for that piece, uh, it was called um, Ebola Ambulance. I followed a guy named Gordon Kamara, who is an uh, ambulance nurse, and uh, he was ex-military. He was... Uh, had a lot of experience kind of working with ambulance, but also just working as a medic during the Liberian Civil War. He was a tough guy. And uh, as soon as I met him, as soon as I dealt with him, I kind of knew that he himself was a voice and he was a character that I think was important for other people to get to know. Um, so I like to focus on the way that people um, interact with the world on their own and kind of use yeah. it to kind of tell their story. Um, I think that it's no different than what you would do to make a film, right? To make a documentary film. Uh, a lot of what I try to do in the news is basically just short documentary filmmaking within the spectrum of, of journalism, within yeah. the news cycles that we impose on ourselves within being with being a newspaper. So with Gordon, I mean, we were in the middle of the outbreak, and he was going through all this stuff, and basically I just followed him and tailed him. Uh, and the way that I did that was just being very small. I just worked alone and with a driver. I had a very small camera. I just concentrated on working safely and kind of uh, very easily so that I wasn't interrupting him or kind of impeding anything he did. Uh, But more than anything else, it was just a matter of kind of gaining his trust and getting kind of getting to a point where we could kind of understand that we both meant business. He was doing his job. I was doing mine. And we could respect each other and kind of respect that the the things that we were trying to do. And after a while, after waking up at 5 a.m. every day and going with him for nine, 10 hour days, then he saw me as, you know, another part of what he was doing. And at that point he started including me and including the, the, my work into his work and knowing that, you know, I wasn't going to go away and knowing that he, that I was doing something that was worthy to the thing that he was trying to do, which is I was trying to, he was trying to help people and I was trying to make sure that it was documented and the story was out there. Sure. Did you, um, as you were editing the piece together, so you had a lot of footage, you had all, you know, all this disparate stuff. Um, like a filmmaker, you need to edit that together. Um, how did you approach that process? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about as it as a story that you wanted to tell with some aesthetic um, decisions that you had to make. Were there things that you um, did purposely uh, in term, in order to make it a little more uh, uh, engaging? Did you uh, are there things you avoided doing because yeah. of journalistic? Um, uh, protocols um i when i I made it i I just approached it as a short film basically and i just knew that it was i wanted it to be a short film that stands on its own as a short film and i wanted it to fit within the news cycle so it would kind of appease both those worlds it would be a film and it would be engaging because i mean so many journalists just kind of leave that at the door being engaging and, and you can't like you want people to watch your stuff and you want people to be moved by it. And video is a medium that does that innately. And that's the most powerful tool is to kind of be emotive and make people grow empathy. So yeah, it had to be good. Um, I had an editor who wanted to cut out uh, all the music. He was like, that's not news where that's not news right for news. 
And I said, it's got to have music. I mean, it's a yeah. film. It's got to be. It's got to be engaging. And it's got to be powerful. But we can do it in a tasteful way that's not overwhelming and is not doesn't compromise any journalistic ethics that that might be kind of other than the kind of old kind of barren ways that we might look at it. So, yeah, I wanted it to be good, and I wanted people to appreciate it in a way that they would otherwise not go into a place like TV news or or something like that. So uh, before we go on, let's take a listen to a section from Ebola Ambulance. My name is Gordon Kamara. I'm an ambulance nurse. From March up to now, I've been fighting these Ebola cases. Our job is to save the people. So thinking about something like music, I mean, how did you come to the decision what kind of music to use? Because it can be a very... I mean, some people could say it could be a very manipulative form of the medium, but I can't imagine that piece without the music to be honest with you. So I'm curious how you made decisions what to use. Yeah, I mean, the music used in it was all just was uh, just tonal. Yeah. It's very simple. Um, and it was, it was it's drones. It's called different drones that we use that kind of just like kind of emphasize kind of an emotion. Yeah. I just think that it's a good way to kind of just add emotion to something and add like feeling to this kind of piece. Um, journalistically, yeah, you can definitely argue that it's it compromises some of the journalism that it's not straightforward but i mean if you add you know any sound edit, i mean if you go down that path then you're asking a lot of different questions like well if you add music are you allowed to add any sound editing are you allowed to do like cuts when things are emotive like yes you are trying to make an emotional state you're trying to show this emotional moment and i think that once you walk down that path of like what's right and what's wrong and doing that then you can start limiting yourself to making it un- unrealistic i mean these were unbelievably powerful scenes and I think that they needed to be emphasized. Yeah. No, I, I do think the, the music gave it a gravitas. It didn't, it didn't seem to me to, to try to direct my emotions as, as much as to say, this is a very serious thing that's going on here, uh, not to be taken lightly. So it didn't seem to say, by the way, this is sad and this is a little happier and yeah. this is funny. It just seemed to be saying, this is, this is serious. Um, and I, I, I like your point about, um, you know, anytime you make a decision, to include or exclude something, you are manipulating the story on some level. And so uh, there's a way in which this could easily turn into a kind of navel-gazing exercise of what can I do, what can't I do. Um, Great. So um, lastly, I I just want to talk to you a little bit about um, your your working process. Um, Obviously, there's different processes for um, different stories. So Fallujah is going to be a very different process than going into Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, how do you typically approach something like, well, I guess one of the ways to ask this is, what, what's, what's the level, level of preparation that has to go into embedding with a, a set of fighters in Fallujah? Um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the biggest thing is safety, right? Like yeah. You have to spend a lot of time dealing with and preparing and getting to a point where you can work safely in these kinds of situations. 
and there is uh you know it's not it's not a it's not an art it's a science like there's things that you can do that lower your chances for for getting injured or, or killed so we make sure we cover all those measures we make sure we have the right security we make sure we have the right uh cars we make sure we have the right people going in them we have to make sure like we point them the right way when we're about to leave or enter a situation so that we can get out really quickly these are all things that you learn and that you need to keep in your mind as, as you do all this stuff the other preparation especially for fallujah was cameras like uh we knew that we were going to be working in very hard circumstances and very hot circumstances. Yeah. This was June and uh, in and was it May and June in in uh, in Fallujah, Iraq. It was 120 <laughs> degrees every day. It was yeah. insane, and uh, so we had to have cameras that that would withstand that. So I spent a good month and a half working with uh, uh, engineers in Hong Kong and in London. These guys were really great in helping us kind of develop these cameras. I mean, with old tech, I mean, we basically, all the cameras that were on the market were all made from either GoPros or Samsung, and all these things would just turn off after yeah. 10 minutes. They would just die. And what we had to do is go back a generation in GoPros. We had to go to the GoPro 3, which was hard to find because, like, they don't make them and yeah. barely sell them anymore. I mean, I basically bought 10 of them from some guy on eBay. <laughs> and, like... And we had to use those because those were the only things with the older tech that still were able to stand up to this heat. Um, so it took a while, and it took a lot of testing. We had to do a lot of kind of figuring out what was the best thing, what was the fastest thing. And then I had to develop my own techniques for just, like, how to change batteries, how to download the footage, how to work in this very quick maneuvering situation where I, was, I knew I was, there was never going to be, like, a consistency. I knew I was going to have to bounce around. I knew I was going to have to overnight sometimes, maybe not be able to charge my batteries. So I basically built my camera, and then I built my pack i built my bags so that i could just have everything i need and i was just it was just pretty ragtag just to be able to kind of i mean virtual reality because it's so new and because the technology is so um novel is so uh new and kind of young there's not you know a lot of good cameras for it so instead of having good cameras and having crew i mean most of these virtual reality shoots have big crews that they yeah. work with i just kind of developed my own uh whole system of working i had like a fanny pack and it had like six battery like wrapped up with rubber bands so that i could change in fact i had a uh, tweezers so i could turn on and off the cameras from the sides i had like uh, extra washers and like things so that i could attach it to different things i had different like suction cups so if i wanted to put it on a mirror very quickly i was just like you know it was like i had this like bags covering me all at all times with <laughs> every little bit of kit and yeah. backups of every little bit of kit. And, uh, it, it seems like in some ways like the opposite of what we imagined the, the sort of future uh, of media to be, oh, yeah. which is clean and slick. It's, it's it really was, laden down with. I was like low tech wearing <laughs> just like, oh, I mean, I was so goofy looking just having all these different things hanging off me. And, uh, yeah. I mean, it was the only way to do it because yeah. like, you just basically everything that virtual reality is right now because it's so new and because it's so fresh and these cameras needed their own kind of procedure everything is basically a hack everything is you breaking into these things and hacking into the way that they work so that you can make this product so everything i was doing was basically on the fly hacking of these cameras in a war zone which was not easy it was it was a lot of work and it felt a lot of times like i was more of like a camera janitor than, <laughs> like than a filmmaker at all i was just like a guy making sure everything was working and uh it was tough. Well, Ben Solomon, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Oh, thank you. 
It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for another episode of Modern Media. Our guest today has been Ben Solomon, a Pulitzer Prize winning multimedia journalist for the New York Times. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.